a huge Supreme Court ruling that will impact the U.S. Congress for decades to come. Where did it all come from? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available, of course, wherever you get your politics and on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I'm just delighted to welcome back an old friend, someone who leapfrogged way beyond me in her congressional staffing career, Michaeline Kroll, who, I mean, my gosh, I just, I love going through your resume every time you're on the show, Michaeline, because you've just worked for the who's who of Democratic Party lions in Congress, including you were the chief of staff for U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. You were the stand-in when he was running against Hillary Clinton in 2016, when they were doing debate prep. That was awesome. You worked for John Lewis, one of all of our heroes, and Ted Kennedy. It's absolutely incredible. But for the purposes of this show, you also had a front row seat and hands in on the Voting Rights Act, which was at issue in this recent Supreme Court ruling. Michaeline, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's always a pleasure. It, it's always fun. And once upon a time, when you were working for John Lewis, uh, you invited me, I think we were going out to lunch or something, and you said, oh, just come step in to Congressman Lewis's office. And I felt like I had stepped into a time capsule of American history. The photos on that man's wall were just so incredible and obviously so up close and personal. And that's what I want to do with this show. So we had this big Supreme Court ruling that got a little bit overlooked in the news of Donald Trump's second indictment. And yet it's arguably almost as consequential, especially when it comes to the makeup of the U.S. Congress. And it all has to do with the Voting Rights Act. So let's start with the Voting Rights Act is one of the most consequential laws in the last hundred years. Could you just remind us, what is it? What's the backstory of the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, in the 60s, we're talking 58 years ago that this law was passed. It was signed by Lyndon Johnson, and it basically, they had just passed a huge Civil Rights Act. And Johnson basically said, I don't have any more juice to do this. They went out and got more juice. Unfortunately, it was at the expense of people who were marching on Bloody Sunday who were beaten. And I think that it really changed the consciousness of the country in terms of watching people who wanted to register and vote, who were peacefully marching and who were attacked on that bridge. And John Lewis led that march. And so he tells those stories. When you were in his office, he would tell those stories and walk through the pictures, experience that day again and share it with folks. And it was very powerful. They, there was a speech that was given by Johnson right after Bloody Sunday, where he basically said, we will get from Selma to Montgomery and we will pass the Voting Rights Act. And he said the words, we shall overcome, which was extremely powerful. And in John Lewis's telling, Dr. Martin Luther King looked at him and said, we will get a Voting Rights Act. Just to put that context, I've heard that story from him so many times, and it still rings in my ears, just that giving the political presence, giving the, giving the political power the ability to do the things that need to be done. That was what these people did with their bodies on Bloody Sunday and in other ways. And so the Voting Rights Act was finally signed 58 years ago this summer, and it had two sections. One was a section that basically required those states that had discriminatory voting practices pre-clear or get approved before it went into effect voting laws that were of consequences. And those would be pre-cleared either by a three judge panel or by the Department of Justice. And so that was one of the pieces that was so powerful. So you couldn't just make a change in a polling place or make a change in how many ballot boxes there were. You had to get that changed if there was a, a history of discrimination. And then there's a section two, which you could take up at any time and go through the courts and remedy voting discrimination 
after the fact. So there was one that prevented it from happening in the first place. Okay, that's section five. And then there's one where you could fight about it later, section two. So what happened in Shelby versus Holder, which was in 2013, is that law, that part of the law, section five, they basically said, you can't do this anymore. It's basically struck it down. We can talk about that in a little more detail. Section two remained. And the court case that we just heard was about section two. And it was after the fact, remedying a situation after elections had already happened. Got it. Got it. And you come into this story and making you the hero of the story. I don't mean to, obviously there are other bigger, way bigger heroes of the story, but you ended up with a role in this story in 2006. What was that role? What did Congress have to do at that time? Yeah. So the Voting Rights Act has been reauthorized several times over the years. And in 2006, it was up for reauthorization. It was a, a split Congress. Interestingly, it was a Congress. The House at the time was run by Republicans. There was a Republican in the White House and there was a Democratic Senate. John Lewis was working on the Voting Rights Act reauthorization in 2006, and Ted Kennedy was leading it in the Senate, which was a nice way for me to bring those two parts of my life together pretty seamlessly. There was a big discussion about whether at that time during this reauthorization, we should consider a different, a different way of determining the formula for which states were covered. And, and honestly- By the preclearance- requirement. Pre-clearance requirement. So the one that would happen before an election took place that would prevent discrimination in an election from happening before the election happened. So there was a big discussion about that. And, and ultimately, they went with a pretty similar formula to what they had done in the past. And that bore out to be something that the Supreme Court attacked a few years later in 2013, and ended up pretty much gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I wish we'd gone in a different direction, but in hindsight, it's easier to do what you have always done as opposed to try something new that could potentially be challenged by the courts. So everyone had good intentions at the time to try to pass a law that was actually going to work. Unfortunately, we ended up with a Supreme Court that didn't see it that way. Let's unpack that just a little bit. You're both an attorney and you were staff are working on this. I'm not an attorney and I was not directly working on this, even though I was working in Congress at the time. But what you're saying is that there was, there was in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, there was a setup for which states were going to be required to go through this pre-clearance process because they were suspect. They had a history, a really pretty revolting history of discrimination. And so there were standards that the law applied for, here's what you need to do in order to pass voting laws, because we don't trust you. We don't believe that you're acting in good faith here. And you thought about, as part of this reauthorization in 2006, maybe we can go about that determination of who's on the list in a slightly different way. And you ultimately decided a lot of these decisions really are about risk. If I'm hearing you, it's always risky to try something new with federal law because everyone's litigious and these states could come at a new approach and say, no, this isn't right. This isn't constitutional. This isn't fair. So to apply a new approach would be to take a risk and would be to imperil the Voting Rights Act. So you made by you, the group of members of Congress working on this at the time, made the strategic decision, let's stick with the basic approach that we've applied thus far. And that's what the Roberts Court, in a decision written by Chief Justice Roberts in 2013, overturned and pushed back on. 
That's correct. And it wasn't just the states that you would normally consider as part of the civil rights movement, 1960s bad actors. There were times when there were dis- the voting decisions made in other jurisdictions that had them lumped into this preclearance regime as well. And so there were many other jurisdictions, not just in the traditional Southern states where you saw, which precipitated this in the first place, there were other jurisdictions that were covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And so it had been changed marginally over the years to actually make sure that it wasn't just focused on the states that were there originally, but that others who potentially are discriminating against voters. And sometimes it was with language, sometimes it was other ways of discrimination. And so it was, the Voting Rights Act was expanded somewhat over the years to to deal with language minorities and others. And so it it was a very useful system in other places as well. But yes, the risk that that was on the table at the time, I think there were, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a civil rights lawyer. I call myself a recovering lawyer. It's been 20 more years that I've been in the courtroom. It's been a long time since I practiced even at that point. Um, But I do think that there were people of good faith on all sides that were trying to do the right thing. And while there was a discussion and while there, I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more forward-looking and potentially different, the decision came down to to use the the Section 4 formula that had been used in the last version of the law. You touched on some of the things that the Voting Rights Act with this preclearance process was trying to prevent. Could we talk a little bit about, because, and this is going to come back because the reasoning that Justice Roberts applied was basically 40 some odd, 45 years ago, 50 years ago, this was important, but times have changed. This isn't necessary anymore. And therefore we're overturning it. And I trust that things will go fine from here. And uh, I think people know where I'm going with that. What kinds of behaviors from these states were we trying to prevent with the Voting Rights Act? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So just as you indicated, the issue is once once some discriminatory change in voting happens and then an election happens, it impacts the election. And there's no way to unring that election bell. And so Section 5 was to try to fix things before an election happens so that you wouldn't see the discrimination bear out in the electoral decision-making process. So it could be anything. It's a lot of the things that we're seeing today in the hundreds and hundreds of anti-voting bills that have come out in dozens of states in the last several years. And that was it was a bigger push for this over the 2020-2021 cycle as well. You know, we're talking about something as simple as changing a voting place. If you're moving voting places from schools, say, into federal or municipal buildings, that sort of is can be challenging for certain people. If you move them out of neighborhoods where people are generally voting and make it more difficult for people to vote in various places, if you change the vote by mail situation, if you change where ballot boxes are located, if you're going to vote by mail, it, it could mean any number of things in terms of voting changes, anything that will have and negatively have an impact on a certain group of people as they try to exercise their right to vote. As I alluded to, Justice Roberts, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, said, times have changed. We're good now. You guys, shame, Tisk. We know that you've been really bad in the past, but we believe that you've turned over a new leaf. And it, as you just said, 
Not so much, not so much. And-, and it is an extraordinary remedy. It is extraordinary for a state to have to go to the Department of Justice or to go to a three judge federal judge panel to get a, a voting change made. But they have to go in and say, hey, we're making this change and it's not discriminatory and here's why. It's a, it is a very onerous thing to have to do. And so I, I don't blame the Supreme Court for looking at it. And, but I do think that there was a situation where, you know, saying, Congress, you need to go back and rewrite the formula so that we're covering the right types of jurisdictions. That was difficult in the political situation we were in, because even though the 2006 law was passed with a Republican House and a Republican chairman of the Judiciary Committee and a Republican president who signed it, the politics had changed as such that there was not going to be this renewed discussion about how to actually go forward with this and to craft a law that was going to protect people. I want to follow up on a point you were making a moment ago about the timing of these things, because I love the phrase, you can't unring a bell. Sometimes states have taken the approach of doing bad stuff and getting away with it. It's like a Scooby-Doo villain. They get away with it, if not for those pesky kids for a couple of election cycles, and then eventually the courts will step in. By that time, the damage has frequently been done. And so one example is North Carolina, which two months after the Shelby decision in 2013, North Carolina enacted a voting bill that instituted a strict photo ID requirement. It curtailed early voting. It eliminated same-day registration. It restricted pre-registration. It ended annual voter registration drives because goodness knows you don't want to get people to sign up to vote. Then they might actually vote. Oh, no. And it eliminated the authority of county boards of elections to keep polls open for an additional hour, which, again, is just gumming up the works. You have a problem at a voting place and then the local you call someone locally and you're like, hey, we need another hour. We've had a problem here. We had a power outage. Let's fix this. State said, nope, can't do that anymore. We're going to we're going to control this by a Republican controlled legislature or secretary of state. And in the course of time, by 2017, it wound its way through the court system and it was overturned in overturning it. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit said that this law targeted African-Americans, I'm quoting here, with almost surgical precision. That is devastating language from the federal courts. This is flat out saying, you guys are racists. You guys are going right after black voters. What the hell is wrong with you? We know what's wrong with you. And okay, good on the federal court system to step in. But now you've had a couple of election cycles where these kinds of laws are underway. And even if they're not in effect, even if there are stays, voters get confused local elections supervisors get confused. They don't know what the law is. There's chaos and there's confusion. And the effect is felt by the voters that the legislature is going after. All right. I belabored all of that for a reason, because before we got on the air, you were making a point to me that there's something interesting about the Supreme Court's ruling here, which is the timing. So let's talk a little bit about this most recent Supreme Court ruling. And first of all, the headline version of it is, it seems like really good news for Democrats. And it seems like the court at the very least is declining to do further damage to the Voting Rights Act. Just tell us real quick, what did the court do here? 
The court basically said that under Section 2, the maps that were drawn for the congressional districts in Alabama were discriminatory. Of they, they created one majority-minority district when, in fact, they could have created two. And basically, they said that the states can have to go back and redraw the lines for this. Um, I think to your point, the really interesting thing is that when they had the opportunity to take these these maps up in 2022, before the 2022 election cycle, this was early in the winter of 2022, well before the election, they said it's too close to the election for us to deal with. And so those discriminatory maps were actually used in the 2022 election cycle. And so we have a situation, (laughs) right, the bell was rung and it was Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, here, 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 because he ended up with a five seat majority in the House of Representatives. And this ruling affects not just Alabama, but there was a seat at issue in Louisiana. There was a seat at issue in Georgia. So that's three seats right there. And then there are additional seats that are at issue in Texas. So the point is that if the court had acted soon and put a stay on these maps earlier, we would have been right on the dividing line, literally a one seat margin. It took the man 15 ballots to become Speaker of the House. You can only imagine how much it, even if it didn't ultimately swing the majority to the Democrats, it would have changed the entire dynamic and it would have better reflected the true strength that voters wanted Democrats to have in the House of Representatives. It would have put them in an even stronger bargaining position. And so these things have major consequences. So it sounds like- To put a finer point on the distinction between the section two and the section five. So if these maps had been drawn under a regime that still had section five of the Voting Rights Act, those maps would have been brought to the Department of Justice or a three judge panel, and they would have said yes or no, these are discriminatory or not before an election happened. Section two is the only game in town now. So to do this, there was this opportunity for- things to go forward or for the courts to say that it's too close to an election or to make some other type of excuse to allow things to go forward, where that process is a little bit more hard to control and challenging. And obviously, had this result happened in 2022, we would have had different maps and it would have impacted the way that other courts were deciding decisions based on maps in other states. And so I just want to make the distinction that because this case came under Section 2, it was not going to be ever stopped before an election cycle, just as a matter of course, it could have been, but there are individuals and personalities and decision makers who make decisions about whether or not it's too close to an election or not to decide these things. I think nine months is not too close to an election, but that wasn't the decision that was made. Remember, according to the McConnell principle, nine months is too close to an election to allow the president to exercise their constitutional authority to name a Supreme Court justice. So there you go. And just again, just while we're putting finer points on things, very specifically what happened in Alabama was 27% of the state's voting population is African-American. And just there are seven congressional districts. And so that very neatly mathematically, almost exactly works out to There should be two districts that are majority African-American. And today's day and age, because of very real historic trends, that means majority Black district means likely Democratic seat. And what the Alabama legislature did is called 
packing. They packed all of the black voters into one district and said, there, you get one. You should get two, but you get one. And let's let's not kid ourselves. They know exactly what they're doing here. And it's just, it's an interesting wrinkle in all of this. Let me ask this. Is the headline fundamentally correct that this is a win for the Voting Rights Act and politically a win for the Democratic Party? Or is that kind of missing the bigger picture of the longer term damage that's been done to the Voting Rights Act? And as you said before, the hundreds of laws that have been unleashed and that are going to continue to operate at the state level that restrict voting. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Look, this was a good decision. It came down properly and it was the Voting Rights Act was used as it's supposed to be used in Section 2 for these longer term discussions. I think it, it, however, makes the case explicitly for the need for Section 5, because had this map gone to a three judge panel or to the Department of Justice before it was actually used in an election cycle, it would have been stopped on these basis of it being discriminatory. So I think that it makes the case for restarting this conversation about the need for the Voting Rights Act and the need for Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I do think that if you can acknowledge that it was a case that was decided correctly, it was decided correctly a year too late to be to have done what it was supposed to do for the voters in that those districts that that should have had the ability to choose a candidate to have a candidate of their choice but i think that it, the democrats should come away from this saying it's time for us to make a bigger push on the voting rights act and i think your this year is the 60th anniversary of the march on washington you also know i work with martin luther king iii and his wife andrea and daughter yolanda on the drum major institute and there'll be a massive march this summer and of course there's so many places where People are talking about the rolling back of of rights, not just in voting, but in in other sectors. But I think you're going to continue to see people trying to give legislators the ability to have some cover and to know that this is an important issue for folks. That we can't just give up on the Voting Rights Act. This was some, this is like I, I mentioned it a couple of times because I think it's really important. This is a law that was passed in a bipartisan way every time it was reauthorized in the last 60 years. And this is something we should not be having a, a political conversation about, although what it does is it ends up supporting Democrats versus Republicans. And so no one wants to have this conversation again, even though they can look at it and see that there is a dis discrimination happening in voting all over the country that needs to be addressed and could be addressed by a robust Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I think that is one of the changes that we've seen in the last 60 years, I'm going to turn this into a question to you, is that it's true that the kinds of voting discrimination practices that we saw at the state level, they, 60 years ago, they cloaked them in some, they, there were some attempts to say it's a poll tax, it's a literacy test, it's a, it's a this, it's a that, but it was pretty overt. I don't think there were many illusions about what was going on there. And it was very explicitly about race. It feels like today it's become a little bit more subtle. And I've worked at both the state legislative level and in Congress. And you have conversations with Republicans who are pushing for voter ID laws. And 
you can press them on the question of why is this needed? Why is this good? And they give you some kind of abstract theoretical, in theory, this prevents voter fraud. And you say, since cases of actual voter fraud are literally more rare than being struck by lightning, do we need this because there are known negative consequences for particular groups of voters, by which I mean Black voters? And they say, we have to uphold the principle, blah, blah. My point being, I think there are plenty of Republicans who really believe this. They're quite earnest about it and may have even convinced themselves that these kinds of laws are good, that they're about protecting the sanctity of the voting process. And so it's become, it's just become a lot more subtle, but it feels like it's still the same set of issues, even if they won't admit it to themselves, the effects are the same. And so in a way, despite what Justice Roberts said in 2013 in Shelby, times haven't really changed in some very depressing ways. And maybe the motivations aren't as overtly racial. They're more, if you got Republicans on truth serum, they would say, honestly, we don't really have anything against Black people. We just don't like their voting decisions because they're always voting for our opponents. Maybe that's what's going on. But nonetheless, the effect is the same. And I think it's also, it's not just, it's elderly, it's poor people, it's people that have a hard time getting identification is a real issue. You'll be interested to know that there's someone like Andy Young who says, look, it, the cart has, the horse has already left the barn or whatever the analogy is, that there are so many states that require this now. Like I grew up in a state in Massachusetts where you sign your name and that's how you prove you are who you are. And I've never felt safer walking into a voting booth. And I love that. Most jurisdictions require that kind of thing. And you can't open a bank account and you can't get on a plane and you can't do certain things without identification. So there, there should be some sort of push to make identification easy to access. And someone like Andy Young says, we should just have a federal, the ability to get a free passport card or a social security card with your photo on it or something that would allow people to go into voting booths. It's not the majority opinion as of people who talk about voter ID issues. But honestly, I think you're right. I think that what, what ends up happening is that people who are poor or elderly or, or African-American end up having the most difficulty in getting these IDs and the impact is exactly the same. It's maybe not overtly discriminatory, but it does have a discriminatory impact. And these are issues that, you know, allowing a gun ID to be okay, but not a student ID. Those are the places where people start getting aggravated about the way that photo ID laws are actually administered. It's, oh, wait, you're likely to be one of our people. That ID seems great. Seems great to me. I do think, though, despite my snarkiness here, I do think that you're taking us to a better note to end on, which is even if the summation of the Supreme Court ruling is good short-term decision, helpful, good for the Democratic Party, good for Black voters, good for all kinds of voters who are in disadvantaged situations, long-term, it doesn't fix the underlying issues. I think what you're pointing out is we don't have to necessarily just rely on the Supreme Court for that. And we don't have to necessarily just rely on the U.S. Congress, which is pretty stymied on these issues for those kinds of fixes. There are available avenues that can be productive. For one thing, you can fight discriminatory laws at the state level. And there have been successful efforts at the state level, including efforts just to stop the worst of the worst and keep the situation from deteriorating further in red states. And 
those are successful. Those can work. That's a great avenue. The other is exhausting. What, yes, exhausting, exhausting, but critical. The other thing is you can concede on principle and you can say, okay, let's let go of the fact that we don't like voter ID laws. You can work through and find a reasonable compromise around those that's less discriminatory. And I, these kinds of approaches are gaining some ground at the state level. Agreed. But I do think that it points it, it points us right back to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. There are discriminatory laws that can be passed that could be prevented if we had a robust Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So I do think coming back to the Republicans who had been in favor of Section 5 in the past, they're dwindling as they continue to get older and don't remember some of the history. But there have always been Democrats and Republicans who joined arms and said, there's a problem here. And there's there are unfair laws that are happening that are discriminating against people on the basis of race or language or other minority statuses, and people need to have the right to vote. And because I think our politics is so evenly divided right now, and because the balance of power does hang so closely, it's harder for those discussions to happen. And I think when we have these opportunities to point out that this is still a problem, that there are solutions that need to be vetted in the congressional arena, we should point them out and we should remind people that there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And if you if you have to bend the rules in order to win, maybe you're not exactly winning. Maybe you're stealing these elections. That is a great note to end on, Michaeline, as always, just absolutely delightful to have you on the show. Thanks for giving us the history, the perspective, and a little better understanding of what's going on here. Thank you. Always a pleasure.